American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Um, so, you know, we'll start, and can we get the lights down, please, with what is, of course, the most iconic image of the British anti-slavery movement and an image that has continued to have a staying power well into the modern era. And its power is for so many different reasons. One is, in many ways, that it is the first, at least in the, you know, in the, in the British world, um, but it also so powerfully captured in a single image the ideas and issues that many pamphleteers and many anti-slavery abolitionists, and we'll talk about what they're actually trying to abolish because it isn't slavery, um, at the period we're talking about. But what the image does is crystallize all of that in a very powerful and evocative image. And it's playing off of imagery that is very familiar to a British public. And that's part of its power, right? So in the 18th century, it's very common for ship diagrams to be published, to be presented. Paintings of ships are wildly popular. Britain is, of course, an empire of the oceans. Shipping is everything to the power of the British Empire. And so this kind of imagery is very familiar. And yet here it is in the representation of a very specific ship that's also part of its power, right? That it's based on a real vessel, the vessel called the Brooks, that sailed regularly out of Liverpool. And it takes what is essentially naval architecture renditions and then populates it with the bodies of African slaves. And presents it in this very almost um, clinical sort of way. It's this very draftsman-like architectural imagery that is feeding off of this very well-known imagery, but by placing the bodies of African slaves there and representing the overcrowding, and in fact, this is many fewer bodies than would have been packed on the brooks regularly, but it was what worked, I think, for the draftsman making the image, um, powerfully captured it. And it has this amazing doubling with a coffin. If you think about um, the length of the ship itself, um, it sort of echoes the death imagery of coffins, which were also very popular in print culture, in, particularly in 17th century Britain. And so it's picking off of imagery that is well known and twisting it in this new way that immediately grabbed the interest of the British public. And it had the ability, because it can be cheaply produced, it can be replicated thousands of times over, and it can be stuck up on a tavern. It can be stuck up on a pole. It can be stuck up in public places. And it's black and white visual imagery being so stark grabbed people's attention and often brought attention to an issue that many people were not going to sit down and read a pamphlet about. And that's constantly one of the strategies that anti-slavery 
activists are going to use with imagery is that it allows them to extend the issue that they are trying to advocate for to populations that otherwise are not interested, are not paying attention, but the imagery grabs them in ways because it can be so broadly disseminated and reach more people. So the Brooks um, coming out in 1789, and again, we often refer to this as the abolitionist movement, but it's not for the abolishment of slavery. It is to end the British participation in the African slave trade, right? So it is a fairly narrowly defined political movement that has, for a period of time, um, a fair amount of power in the late 1780s, um, although it is a long time before that will come to fruition. Um, it gains political attention as well. Uh, a number of British abolitionists who are um, MPs and bring this to the parliament floor, including this amazing ship model that was created so that there was a three-dimensional rendering of the Brooks as well, um, a really powerful piece that, that had this ability, because it's talking in bodily terms, right, because it's, it's able to get people to really think about that physical experience of the Middle Passage is also part of its power. But it's also really important to note that in the representation of these, of these people, they aren't individuals, right? They are replicated exactly the same again and again and again. Um, so they're not people. They're not individuals in this representation. At roughly the same time, um, uh, Josiah Wedgwood, who's an active member of some of these anti-slavery abolitionists, not anti-slavery, I really should call them abolitionist groups, um, produces an image that is the symbol um, of one of these societies and produces it in Wedgwood cameo. So what Wedgwood had done um, is created a, an industrial way to mass produce cameo images, cameos, of course, in great esteem in 18th century Britain, a ancient art form that had to be hand produced. What Wedgwood does is find a way to mass produce it in, in imitation of the ancient form and applies it to this image that even more so than the Brooks ship becomes in many ways the kind of thread through all anti-slavery imagery for decades and decades to come, both in Britain and later in the US. Um, the slogan, am I not a man and a brother, with the image of the partially clothed man, initially, it's a long time before this figure is a woman, um, shackles, um, binding wrist to leg, kneeling and pleading to a white abolitionist to consider his plight. Um, and it gets replicated in many different forms. Part of its power is its visual economy, the black body on the white background, the fact that it can twin with a verisimilitude, the representation of a black body, 
And it's also important to note at this period, there have been very few representations of black bodies in art. There's some, there are pages and portraits who are accompanying you know, aristocrats. I mean, it's not that there is no black body in Western art, but it is limited in comparison to the number of white bodies. And so these then become, in many ways, a literal badge that abolitionists wear. They put them on chains. They pin them to their clothing. It becomes a sort of identification of your political stance on this topic. Um, and these were wildly popular. Um, and they were produced in the, nobody really knows the number, but probably tens of thousands. It is then an image that has enormous staying power and gets replicated in a gazillion different ways. It's in print imagery. Um, it gets put on medallions. It gets put on snuff boxes, which you've got to think about that twinning that you're putting the material of slave product into a box, right? Um, and so forth. So it, it ends up kind of everywhere. But they are ultimately unsuccessful politically at that period in the late 1780s through the 1790s, and it is not until 1807 that Britain finally votes to end its participation in the African slave trade. And it is in 1808, of course, that America also ends its participation in the African slave trade. So what other kinds of imagery is being produced in this early period? It's relatively limited. There's not a lot of it. Most of it comes in the form of book publications that are, or pamphlet publications that are related to usually abolitionist activists, quite often related to travel narratives and travel logs. And probably the most famous of those, from a visual standpoint, are the images that William Blake produced to accompany Stedman's narrative of five years' expedition against the revolted slaves of Suriname. So it's important to remember that there is a larger conversation that's not just about the British West Indies, but also about the many other imperial projects in the West Indies. And there is a a conversation that goes on among activists in the British world, in the French world, in the Dutch world, and so forth. Um, we in the English-speaking world tend to focus on the British, um, for obvious reasons none of us speak Dutch. Um, but there is, um, and there was then, a great conversation going on. William Blake's images are um, unbelievably powerful. Um, they, in many ways, set a, a, a sort of number of visual themes in place that are going to continue to play out in the abolitionist world for decades to come. The first is the focus on bodily torture under the system of slavery. Um, and certainly this image um, showing a male slave who's been hung by the gallows by a hook um, through his ribs is one of the most tortured of those. Um, and the twinning of the collapse of his body and the hook that has grabbed his body um, and is holding it suspended there and the black body against the stark white background of the sky 
um, is an incredibly powerful image. And we are going to see the emphasis on bodily torture continue through the work um, of abolitionists for decades to come. The other thing that William Blake introduces and that has a particular resonance in British imagery in a way that it's not going to come in quite as forcefully in American imagery is the twinning of the torture of female slaves and the sexuality of female slaves. There is a real purient streak through much British abolitionist imagery that is constantly pulling on this theme of female sexuality. Um, and you're going to see that continue for decades to come, even when we get to Uncle Tom's British imagery of Uncle Tom's cabin in the 1850s, you're going to see it continue in a way that's really not as true of American imagery. So this image here um, of the, the woman tied up and whipped but barely clothed and really focusing on her body um, is something that becomes a real strain of Brit British um, abolitionist art. After that burst of energy and imagery in the late 80s and 90s, um, really through to the end of the British participation in the African slave trade, there's not a ton of imagery produced. There's then a resurgence of anti-slavery activity in Britain in the 1820s with a new goal in mind. Now, the ending of slavery in the British colonies. And the participants are different, the themes they hit on are different, and their goal, of course, is very different. Right. So in the 1820s, what really re-energizes the British anti-slavery movement is the participation of women. Women come into this in a major way. Women, of course, do not have the vote in Britain, but they have enormous, they learn how to use their enormous domestic clout to produce political change. And they organize these ladies' societies, as they were often called, where they would get together, they would talk about political action, they would produce prints and materials, and we'll look at some of those, and they would then agitate at home um, for a vote to end slavery in the British colonies. Um, and they are ultimately successful. Um, one of the first changes to that is the change of am I not a man and a, bro a brother to am I not a woman and a sister, which is an enormous switch. And they then began producing and commissioning materials that are mostly focused on representing women in slavery. And their earliest images sometimes are picking up on earlier themes. Right. So this image produced by George Cruikshank, who's a major illustrator um, and print artist in Britain, um, makes a number of important changes. So one of the first things that they begin to do is to really situate slavery in place. So it's no longer this abstracted person against a white background, but we're really looking at Jamaica, right? They put the people in tropical settings. 
even though this is essentially the same pose of am I not a woman and a sister, she's now actually pleading to a real individual, not just the abstract middle-class white anti-slavery activist in Britain who may or may not even know anybody of African descent, right? But she's pleading to the overseer, as this person's probably represented because of his kind of outlandish costume, the overseer who is in the process of whipping her. So that plea becomes a very real plea that's both to the middle class activist back in Britain, but also to the individual to consider the humanity of the individual. And this kind of imagery, again, is going to replicate again and again on thing after thing after thing. Here, a, a little ceramic cup. But the real shift that the women introduce in their imagery that they are producing or that they're commissioning. Um, and that really begins to change the conversation is it's not just a woman, but she becomes a mother and she becomes a Christian. And those are two really powerful tugs on the women of Britain who are the active middle-class abolitionists and really shift the conversation to considering the humanity of the enslaved. And so they produce print imagery um, in rather significant amounts, and they distribute it broadly in Britain. They commission poetry. They commission works. Um, and this stuff really begins to proliferate. So they would print this on silk and on cotton, and they would get around in their groups, and they would sew these purses which they would then sell to raise money for their activities. And they would put in those purses when they sold them uh, pamphlets and materials about slavery in the West Indies. So they were using both imagery and text to try to spread their message to a broader audience. And by using the collective political organizing that was available to women, the idea that they would get together and sew these things together and talk about the issues, they really mobilized a broad, middle-class, female political movement that then is very successful in capturing the attention um, of male politicians. Another thing they tried to do was create um, a, a, a sort of boycott movement against West Indian sugar. Remember that slavery in Jamaica and slavery in the British colonies broadly is almost all about the production of, slate of sugar. And so here they're trying to encourage you to buy East Indian sugar um, because, of course, India is another of Britain's colonies. I'm not so sure the laboring conditions in India are that much better than in Jamaica, um, but that was what they thought would also help. Um, it's not a massive enough movement that it economically has a major impact because not enough people buy into the idea of not buying West Indian sugar. Um, it's also in this period, and we could have a whole other lecture on the transformation of sugar to the Western world, um, and that is why um, slavery takes such a firm hold in the British West Indies. Um, as this imagery evolves, um, another thing that... Uh, is introduced into it, of course, is not just is she a mother 
and is she a Christian, but she is a mother now whose child is taken away from her through the slave trade, right? So the themes that they introduce continue to evolve, and they're all ones that are designed to grab at the heart, the emotions of the white middle class activists that they are trying to motivate in Britain. So the slave trade gets introduced by the British women as a major theme, and the, the separation um, of families becomes a major theme. So they are ultimately successful. Uh, you know, slavery ends eh, nominally in 1834. They introduced something called apprenticeship. It really looks almost exactly like slavery, um, and then that is ended in 1838. So our story is going to shift to the United States. Not that Britain ends its anti-slavery activity, and we'll come back um, to Britain's role later, but now we're going to shift to the United States, because when anti-slavery activity begins in the U.S. It's obviously picking up on what had been successful in Britain earlier, um, and they pick up on a lot of similar themes. And so we see again and again and again in America versions of, am I not a man and a brother, and am I not a woman and a sister? Um, I think this thing, is the fact that this survives is amazing, and it's an incredible. It was a collection box that could be passed around at anti-slavery uh, rallies in order to collect money um, for that anti-slavery group's activities. So the imagery in America is in many ways very different than what we're going to see in Britain in, um, frankly, in its level of artistic quality. I mean, if we want to be really frank about a piece that's always important to remember in this kind of imagery is what I've been talking about so far is print imagery, um, and we're going to get to fine arts later. Those are very different worlds. What kind of things you can do in fine art versus print imagery is very different. Britain has a very sophisticated and developed print you know, series of artists um, and print reproduction capabilities. America's is much less developed and so is going to appear much cruder. Um, so instead of engravings, a lot of the early American imagery is rather crude woodcuts, um, and we're going to see that continue um, for a period of time. One of the earliest uh, sort of splash uh, things that is produced is the slave market of America from 1835. Again, the kind of thing that could be posted and tacked up different places. Um, and in a, a small series of images, manages to set the tone for a lot of the themes that are going to be a focus for American anti-slavery activism. Um, focused on Washington, D.C., a city that will be a place of contention um, until the Compromise of 1850, which will then outlaw the trading um, of slaves in Washington, D.C., but that's really what this is focused on, that, that contradiction between our rhetoric of liberty and freedom in the nation's capital and the fact that people were sold daily um, on the streets of Washington. And so the, the subject that immediately becomes a major subject for anti-slavery activists in America is the slave trade, about which you were speaking earlier, the trade in enslaved people that ultimately is going to relocate nearly a million people from Maryland, D.C., Virginia, North Carolina, down to the Cotton South. 
um, and this trade was active in D.C. Um, of course, in 12 Years a Slave, he was taken in D.C. He spends a period of time in, the, in Birch's jail a few blocks from D.C. He's then carried to Richmond, um, which becomes in the 1850s the largest slave trading center on the East Coast with its corrugate, um, you know, it's, it's, its sister city where many people ended up in New Orleans um, down south. So here we have the representation of a number of places, um, probably most famously uh, the place in what is now Alexandria, but was then still part of the District of Columbia um, that still survives in Alexandria today, that was famously photographed at the start of the Civil War. It was then um, Birch and Armfield's um, jail, but at the time was Franklin, uh, sorry, Franklin and Armfield was later uh, Birch and Alexander. Um, so the imagery focused on the slave trade um, and the sale of people is going to be one of the major themes that animates uh, American anti-slavery imagery. So here is the sale of a free citizen, uh, the ships that Franklin and Armfield used uh, once people were sold in Alexandria to transport them down uh, to New Orleans and to Natchez, and here is Franklin and Armfield. Um, jail in what is today uh, Alexandria. And the key building, this building here, um, still survives in Alexandria today on Duke Street. People were moved through the slave trade by three primary different means. Um, one was by ship, the other was by coffle, and the coffle becomes a major theme. The coffle, of course, had been a theme in the representation of the African slave trade. It becomes a theme in the representation of the American slave trade. Um, and certainly, for many years, the coffle was one of the primary means of transport. Sometimes people were marched hundreds, sometimes over a thousand miles from the upper south to the lower south typically marched in relative, you know, medium-sized groups, um, almost always with uh, horsemen at the front and the rear that were armed. Uh, almost always men were shackled together. Women were not always required to be shackled together. Um, and this became a very popular image that you'll see replicated again and again in anti-slavery materials. And anti-slavery materials in the U.S. are almost all publications that are pamphlets um, or books, and that is how this imagery is mostly disseminated. There are fewer, although there are some, but there are fewer standalone prints as there had been in Great Britain. And so the themes that animate the American anti-slavery movement continue to be torture, um, the bodily torture through whipping and hanging um, and some other horrific forms um, of torture. Those get represent, represented frequently. Um, running away becomes um, a major theme, the, and, and there are two issues that anti-slavery activists are pointing to in running away. Part of it is the proof that enslaved people don't wish to be enslaved, um, and part of it is also the barbarity of the hunt um, that runaway slaves, um, the ways in which they were often pursued. Um, so. The animating themes for American anti-slavery activity, um, physical torture, running away, 
the slave trade, and the separation of the family. Those are really the main themes um, that animate um, their, their visual material. Um, runaway notices are, of course, in every Southern newspaper, and thus this becomes one of the kind of iconic images um, the enslaved person with a bundle over his or her shoulder. Um, newspaper manufacturers had blocks, right? So you're laying out your blocks of all your text. They also had multiple blocks available for a runaway slave. Um, and so nearly every paper in the American South had at least one of these blocks, um, if not more. Um, and would use it so that if you're looking at a large 19th century newspaper, they're typically not many pages long, four to eight pages long, and you've got little notice after little notice, and it's higgledy-piggledy of various different kinds. These pop right out, because most of the other kind of notices have no visual imagery, so it really makes them pop. And one of the things that becomes really weird is that these are not just eventually about runaways, but they become an image used for anything related to slavery. Um, so that in a New Orleans newspaper, which is what this is, you have right next to each other a runaway image, but for somebody who's being sold, as well as a runaway image for somebody who's run away. Um, and this imagery, the runaway slave who's frozen forever in time in the act of leaving, but never um, really sort of gets to his final destination um, because the long arm of the law often recaptures them or the long arm of America, of militial, white militial activity often ca captures him, um, becomes an icon that you'll see sometimes appearing in other images as well. Um, you mentioned the 1850 uh, compromise, which in included many different bills, one of which was um, the Fugitive Slave Law, which gave the South uh, the backing of federal support to reach into the North and reclaim runaway slaves, um, is a really animating moment for the anti-slavery activity. Um, so, you know, 1830s and 1840s, that imagery we were just looking at before, um, you know, not broadly read, not broadly known outside people who are not part of the anti-slavery movement, um, but the Fugitive Act is opens up um, a real wound um, and brings more Northerners into uh, interest in and paying attention to um, the political issue of slavery. Uh, the Fugitive Slave Law uh, results in the representation of images such as this. This is a standalone print, so there's a, a sort of re-energizing um, of the movement. Uh, here, a very, a, a series of actually quite well-dressed enslaved people um, being shot at from behind um, by planters designated um, by their top hats. Not that it was usually planters in pursuit um, of runaway people. And the theme of running away and the theme of, of enslaved person escaping to the North also gathers real media attention. Um, and so there are very well known and publicized cases such as Henry Box Brown, who 
shipped himself from Richmond, Virginia, um, to the north, and here we see uh, a representation of him coming out of a box, and he becomes a very popular speaker in the anti-slavery uh, movement, often popping out of a box as part of his performance um, to talk about anti-slavery. Um, there are a number of anti-slavery panoramas um, that are created, unfortunately none of which survive. Um, one of which told the story of Henry Box Brown that traveled the North and Great Britain um, in order to um, tell the story and bring the story of slavery to a much broader audience. And so images are playing a really vital role in stretching uh, anti-slavery activity to a larger audience. Uh, Anthony Burns um, and the situation around Anthony Burns, as you mentioned, is one of the most publicized of the fugitive cases. Um, and this uh, fairly large print uh, that tells the story of Anthony Burns, um, again, continues the many themes that are, are such the bedrock of anti-slavery imagery. Um, so here he is um, on the auction block. Um, and so none of this is actually in chronological order, but these are the kind of themes, right, that you hit. Sale on the auction block, his arrest in Boston, escape on shipboard, that's actually what has to happen first, right? Um, and then um, departure from Boston, um, what happens to Anthony Burns after the federal courts determine that he has to be sent back to Virginia. He is sent to Richmond, Virginia. He is put in a jail called Lumpkin's Jail, um, which I can talk to you at length about if anybody's interested, uh, a site we know the site of. The building doesn't survive, but it survives archaeologically. He was held there for four months because all of Richmond and all of Virginia and all of the South was so angry at him that they wanted to punish him. And so they put him in the attic story. Uh, they chained him up. They gave him very little food and water. He lived in horrific conditions for four months. And then he is eventually sold at auction in Richmond um, and sent to a planter in North Carolina. Um, and it is only later um, when he is able to write his abolitionist supporters in the North and they purchase his freedom um, from his North Carolina owner. So a really rather extraordinary image, and there are quite a number of images associated with Anthony Burns. This is probably out of order, but another of the themes uh, that's very popular is, again, this emphasis on enslaved people trying to run away, trying to enact their own freedom. Um, and so there's a lot of these kinds of images as well. With the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act and the sort of re-energizing of the anti-slavery movement in the 1850s, there also begins to emerge, coming from the South, a significant amount of pro-slavery imagery. It takes a number of different forms, um, but the primary form is a visual representation of enslaved people happy and healthy in slavery, right? So this one kind of encapsulates their argument well. Um, slavery as it exists in America, and so you show a family grouping and music and dancing in comparison to the wage labor um, in, in, this is specifically um, focused in the North, the, uh, or sorry, focused in England with the cloth factory um, trying to contrast 
um, this idea of enslaved labor versus wage labor. So that's one theme the pro-slavery activists hit on. Um, and the other are a variety of representations of enslaved people happy on plantations, the most famous of which, of course, is Mount Vernon, the home of George Washington. Um, and so this image, which is one of a series of paintings of, about the life of George Washington, Washington as a farmer at Mount Vernon, is replicated in print and is very popular and very widely known, is shown at the National Academy here in New York. Um, and don't forget that New York is a very southern sympathetic town. Um, this is a wildly popular image, and what it shows is George Washington, benevolent slaveholder, um, and slavery, a benevolent institution. And there's a whole series um, of images that kind of echo that theme. And again, what can be done in fine art is so very different from what can be done in print materials because of the expectations of the art world, the exhibiting art world, um, and so I'll touch on that very quickly. Um, England, in some ways, is much freer for obvious reasons that they no longer have slavery in their commentary about slavery than the American fine art world ever will be. Right, so the American fine art world remains concerned about the politics of slavery and generally avoids the topic. Right? Artists want commissions. Artists want supporters. It is the most divisive topic in American politics. And it's a lot safer to paint a landscape. It's a lot safer to paint something that politically seems very far away from slavery. So there aren't many American artists who will touch it. British artists are sometimes a little bit more willing. Uh, the most famous painting related to the uh, topic of slavery, of course, is Turner's The Slave Ship, um, an extraordinary work of art that was broadly hated when it was exhibited um, in 1840. Um, and we can talk about the many reasons why, but a lot of it is its abstraction, its loose use of paint. Um, that was not what British um, audiences at the time liked in the same Royal Academy exhibition as this painting uh, by a French artist. And this one they thought got anti-slavery activism right because it showed all the themes that they were very familiar with in a language they were familiar with, right? So you have slavers on the West African coast and they are branding a woman here and it has that sexuality on full display. This is what the audience is liked, not Turner's, but it is of course Turner's that has um, stood the test of time. American artists rarely touching the subject matter, um, but obliquely sometimes hitting it, right? So a work like Hiram Powers' Greek Slave, which he first produced in 1843, and then there are multiple copies, and it tours the US, and it tours Britain, um, and it is wildly popular for a whole variety of issues that we could talk about that are not related to slavery. Um, and it's usually talked about without any reference to American slavery. I mean, it's this amazing series of articles that praise her chasteness. Uh, so the story is, she's a Greek woman, she's captured by the Turks in the Greek War of Independence, and she's being sold um, as a slave to be in somebody's harem. But of course, she has 
um, her crosary and cross hanging down, and they talk about her being clothed in chastity, um, her Christian piety very evident, and so forth. Um, wildly popular at the 1851 Great Exhibition in Britain, and there are a few American writers who point out its connection with American slavery, but it's almost always only in the anti-slavery and abolitionist literature that that happens, but the Brits got it, right? They got that the Greek slave is really, if not about, should question American slavery, and in their print material, they publish a number of things that are calling America to confront this hypocrisy. So here, a sample of American manufacturer with Uncle Sam, uh, the eagle of Uncle Sam. And here is what America manufactures, right? It is enslaved people. Um, and even more famously, the punch image that um, has been widely reproduced. Um, the Virginia slave intended as a companion to Power's Greek slave, and an amazing poem that they wrote to go with it um, in their version of enslaved dialect um, that points out the real hypocrisy of the Greek slave. Uncle Tom's Cabin changes everything um, in visual imagery as well as in conversation and the breadth of people um, being exposed or really tackling, um, we can argue whether it's really anti-slavery, but you know, the topic of slavery. The, Im the American imagery in Uncle Tom's Cabin is rather limited. Um, the first version had six, and then the second edition, I think, had about 100. They tend to be fairly small vignettes. Some are full pages, but again, this, you know, this book is tiny um, in its published form. And um, they tend to sort of focus on the piety of Uncle Sam, his um, acquiescence to his situation, the sort of virginal purity of Eva. Um, they hit on uh, Cassie running away. So, I mean, there are a number of themes, um, an auction sale. There are a number of these images, and they become seared in the minds of American readers, right? The British versions of Uncle Tom Cabin are completely different. There's no copyright law. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe makes no money from publications in Britain, so she can control the publication in America, and there's one publisher and one illustrator. But in Britain, anybody who wants to publish Uncle Tom's Cabin can, and there are dozens of versions and dozens of artists who illustrate it. Um, and there are lots of different approaches to it. Um, one of the most famous is the one also illustrated um, by Cruikshank, and he plays on all the visual stereotypes of African Americans. He makes it a funny and sexual story. Um, so figures are characterized, caricaturized, right? Big eyes. Um, they seem, you know, laughing and happy. Um, and sexualized, right? So he finds what few pieces in the story could have a sexual flavor to them, and there aren't many given um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's approach. Um, this is, you know, not a scene that's actually described in full order in Uncle Tom's Cabin, but is kind of referred to, and so he turns it into an image. Um, the imagery around Uncle Tom's Cabin in Britain is unbelievably expansive. Um, one person refers to it as an Uncle Tom mania. There are 
you know, a dozen different theater, theatrical productions. There are playing cards and ceramics and imagery and prints and books. And I mean, everywhere you look, there is Uncle Tom imagery. And certainly the sexualized nature of it is an important part in the sale of Emmeline, who is a mixed race figure, um, is a theme that the British uh, particularly like. So here's some example. You would buy these figurines to place on your mantelpiece. You would have a water pitcher. Um, you might have plates. I mean, just everywhere. Uncle Tom mania. And not all of that is anti-slavery. It's really important to remember that not everything that is about Uncle Tom's cabin is necessarily in opposition to slavery, right? Um, in America, very few American artists are touching the topic of slavery. Um, Eastman Johnson's Negro Life of the South is, of course, one of the rare examples of a painting at the National Academy that specifically addresses slavery. And as John Davis has written so beautifully, its success is it walks a very fine visual line. And if you were pro-slavery, you could read the image as that. And if you were anti-slavery, you could read the image as, as encoding those beliefs. Um, so there are very few who will touch it. John Rogers, a young sculptor, tries. And this is early in his career. He makes the slave auction. And he takes it to a number of New York dealers. And they say, we won't carry it because we don't want to offend half of our customers. Um, and that gives a good sense of the problem with American topics. Much of American art, even though it's not about slavery, has the politics of slavery behind it. So when Thomas Crawford is asked to design freedom for the top of the US Capitol, he's doing this in the 1850s, guess who has veto power on what it looks like? A man named Jefferson Davis, right? And so the first design had a freedom cap on the head of the figure, right? The allegorical freedom cap that was associated first with the French Revolution, but of course had been picked up by anti-slavery activists also as a symbol of anti-slavery freedom. And so that gets vetoed and the freedom cap goes away and instead you get this kind of warlike Minerva headdress for the symbol of freedom. Um, because of the power of the politics of slavery in the US in the 1850s. Um, probably the best known and most powerful anti-slavery image that appears on the walls of Great Britain um, is this one of a series of images produced by a British artist called Air Crow. This is what my slave's waiting for sale is, and so we won't uh, speak at length about that. Um, but it is a powerful image because it is one of the first to treat subjects of African descent in a very different way in the medium of fine art. It is not the anonymity of the figures in the slave ship Brooks. It is not the abstract pleading of am I not a man and a brother. It is not the, the sort of black and white imagery of torture and running away that in some ways was replicated so many times it almost lost its power. But it was instead first a new scene that had never been represented before. And in its lack of action, which is unusual for a 19th century work of art, it is inviting us as viewers into that space to consider the plight-faced 
by the people who are about to be sold at auction. And it didn't hurt Eric Crow at all, but it was exhibited beginning on May 7, 1861, only a few weeks after shots had been fired on Fort Sumter. And so it had the British art world's attention in large part because of politics. Um, and I'd be glad to tell you more about the painting um, if anybody is interested. Um, but that gives you a sense of the range of the kind of issues, the, the places that this imagery would have appeared, the different level of sort of um, artistic representation of people of African descent, and the different conversations that can take place in fine art and in print. Representing torture on the walls of the Royal Academy is not a painting that would have been accepted by the judges of the Royal Academy. But what you can do in your print material is very different. And so those are important things to keep in mind um, as you encounter this imagery. Um, and I'm happy to take questions. Yeah, in the back. No, it's a, it's a single item. I could find it for you, but off the, it's in a British collection. I don't remember if it's in the Maritime Museum, or, or but I could find it for you. Yeah. So given this image and its timing in 1861, um, how did that play with uh, the evolving um, dispute, I guess, in England about mm -hmm. potentially entering on the side yep. of the Confederacy, right? So where... Where did this stand, and how were British politics moving at that point? Well, early on, they're very much, hmm, I don't know, right? And I think also part of the power of this image and the reason it resonates so much with British viewers at the time is because the ambiguity of their fate in many ways is also the ambiguity of the fate of American slavery and the ambiguity of their own position with regard to American slavery. It's a waiting game, yeah. And this is a painting about waiting. Um, so I think it strikes that moment. Um, and some of that is real luck. Um, you know, you'd like to say the artist was that, um, had that much foresight, but he would have had to have begun painting this weeks, if not months before. But he knew about the election of Abraham Lincoln, right? He would have known about the secession of southern states. He knew this was a politically ripe topic. Yeah? Um, I had a question, mm -hmm. questions around the cameos. Um, mm -hmm. Am I not a brother? And am, I, am I not a, a woman? Yeah. Um, so in the reading, um, you acknowledge black female image as being uh, eroticized. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering whether or not you had some thoughts about the relationship between the cameos and the minstrel tradition in which, um, you know, a lot, it's popularly sort of earmarked as beginning around the 1830s, but really the minstrel tradition occurred um, earlier than that in the late 1700s. Um, so I saw their um, sort of, you know, reflections of the Jezebel archetype, reflections of, especially of the woman with the child, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of planting the seed of the matriarch, uh, the black woman as, you know, the sole sort of um, 
head of household, right. if you will. Um, but I also saw um, the black male body as eroticized as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, feeding into you know the notions of you know the black group, yep. someone who yep. is you know can't be entrusted in terms of being a father figure, and um, and I also saw that you know especially in the the black female image, sort of the reinforcement of Victorian, you know, ideals of womanhood, where you know where uh, the black woman is represented as you know sexualized base, um, and that you know counters you know uh, white female identity. So I just wanted to know, essentially, if um, those aspects of the menstrual tradition um, were part of your thinking in terms of, you know, discussing those cameos? Um, I can't say that I was really focused on the menstrual tradition because it's actually news to me that it's that early, right? So, you know, I'm more familiar with what emerges in the 1830s and the 1840s. Um, and the cameo, of course, is decades before that. Um, and so I'm not familiar with what that performative tradition in Britain in the 1780s would have been. That would be a, a really cool thing to know more about. Um, because I'm sure everything that's going on in the larger cultural world in Britain um, and the ways in which white Britons are encountering people of African descent is informing how they're making these representations. So I think it would be enormously important. It's just not something I knew anything about. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to know more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know if the images associated with Uncle Tom's Cabin, the serial publication, mm -hmm. when it first came out. There are no images. no images. There are no images in the newspaper. Just yep, just with the book. First book, six images, and there are those kind of full plates. Um, and then the next one has a, like 110 or something, and lots of them are little you know, they might open a chapter or something like that. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in uh, Christianity and slavery. And, you know, we see images of um, people with Bibles and mm -hmm. praying. Um, but yeah, I've always understood or had an understanding of uh, slavery and Christianity as being, Christianity was almost a form of psychological resistance to, to slavery sometimes, where enslaved people were allowed to practice it in independent ways. Have you come across any kind of images which um, there's very little, there's, um, and, and it's a great and a very complex topic, right? Slavery and Christianity. And the way it shows up in imagery um, in Britain is quite frequent, and in America is much less so. Um, that does not really form a major theme until you get to Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Which was all about Uncle Tom's Christianity, right? And salvation. Um, there is a major painting, which was one of a series, um, and this one painting is the only one that survives, that shows a burial in Louisiana in the woods um, that is mostly populated by enslaved Africans and their whites kind of on the edge of the image. And that's one of the very few works of fine art specifically focused on African spirituality outside of a white context, right? Yeah. So you did a really good 
job of pointing out the differences between uh, depictions in print culture and depictions in fine art, um, connecting it uh, largely to the potentials of the medium and also the interests of the makers of those images. But I'm wondering if your research is pointed towards the audiences for those images as well and how they may have differed. Yeah, and that's, and that's part of the limitation as well, right? So fine art, that is generally trying, so artists in the 19th century make their name by exhibiting in public venues, right? And those public venues are um, very controlled places, right? So you submit a work for consideration to a jury of judges to be accepted. And that jury of judges are other artists, and they are, for the most part, um, operating under a shared set of aesthetic conventions. Um, and so some of the criticism of Eric Crow's painting is specifically around the representation of people of African descent, because there are many in the British world that don't see that as appropriate for the walls of the Royal Academy, right? Because of a series of aesthetic decisions um, that are focused on the Anglo-Saxon as the supreme beauty um, and others not. Um, they would also question the representation of Scottish peasants, and I mean, you know, there's a whole hierarchy there. Um, so the audiences are part of that calculation as well. So for artists making decisions about not representing slavery, they are making decisions about their audience because they don't want to lose part of their audience. Right, so somebody like Eastman Johnson, who famously paints a number of images that we would read as anti-slavery, right? So not Negro Life of the South, which walks this very fine line, but he has a couple representations of Mount Vernon in the 1850s. He has a fugitive's ride to slavery. It's important to know none of those are exhibited until he does exhibit um, the kitchen scene, but that's once it's clear where the Civil War is going. And Fugitive's Ride is not exhibited for a long time. So there, he makes some private images, right, but they're not publicly available. So that is part of the, the, the sort of calculation that artists are making as well. And then the audiences are very different. The people who go to the Royal Academy and the people who go to the National Academy are America's elite or Britain's elite, right? They, the print material reaches a much, much broader audience. And the danger of print material, I mean, the fact that South Carolina outlaws the uh, mailing of abolitionist material into the South is exactly because of the power and reach of printed material. Um, it's there, but it's there in much smaller numbers. Um, because Southerners are pretty good at keeping that stuff out. But you can find some great um, quotes about um, that, that I, when I was doing all my Charleston work, some Charleston slave owners who talked about Uncle Tom's Cabin being read by enslaved people and the comment, a very dangerous work to be sure. Um, you know, saying something like, my maid who is literate, you know, so on and so forth. So. The print material has that danger because it's cheap, easy to pass along, easy to hide. Um, I can remember another great example, um, a man who escaped from Charleston. The one thing he had in his belongings was a print of John Brown. 
to talk about the political power of some of these images. Yeah. So as you're talking about the proliferation of autonomous images, especially in the UK, I'm curious if there's any representational conventions that emerge within that proliferation. Is there an attempt to sort of cross-reference? Is there a creation of a, t of a type that are any identifiable characteristics that they overcome, overcome, or are they just... You know, yes and no. I mean, the, the, the main figures... Uh, the thing about Uncle Tom's Cabin is everyone then talks about everybody through the lens of an Uncle Tom Cabin figure, right? So when they review Crow's painting, they identify, not this one, but the auction scene, they identify her as Cassie, right? When they review Negro Life at the South, they use names of characters in Uncle Tom's. Everyone starts reading those characters by the stereotypes that have emerged with the different characters. So Uncle Tom is the quiet, complacent, Christian um, male slave. And then you have the runaway, and then you have the mixed-race woman who's sold into a life that probably includes um, uh, sort of sexually servicing her new owner. There, you know, so all these different figures emerge. There's Topsy, who's the amusing. Um, so these stereotypes do kind of coalesce um, around different figures. Yeah. This one, it's um, about three feet wide, so it's not life size, yeah. right? So it's it. Right. Right. Boy, we wish we knew. So it's exhibited in 1861. It's it and all the paintings that he did that included images of American slavery are reviewed in 1864. It seems like at the time they're still probably in the artist's collection. Then they disappear from any written record, and it's purchased by an American in the 19... It's either the late 50s or early 60s, and we know nothing about it from a British dealer, and we know nothing about its interim. Uh, Crow doesn't die until 1907. Um, he had no, he was not married and he had no children. Um, so what happened to his estate at, I haven't been able to figure that out. Um, another interesting corollary to that, there, when I was doing the research for the book, there was a lost painting, or I thought it was lost, um, that depicted a slave sale in Charleston that there is a print that he published in the Illustrated London News. Almost all these images end up in the Illustrated London News as well. So they have a broad print circulation long before they become paintings. Um, and a friend came back from Havana and said, you know, there's a slave auction scene in their collections. And so I get a JPEG from the curator, and I've now been down to Havana to see it, and it's Crow's Lost Painting. Um, and it was, um, as the files say, recuperacion, it was recuperated in the revolution from a Cuban collector, um, although we're not certain what family, because those files live 
at the cultural ministry and are not even shared with the curators. Um, but my somehow or another, um, it was also probably purchased around 50s, 60s, probably. That's when the collector they think was collecting probably bought it. Um, and so it still exists. We tried to borrow it. I did an exhibit at the Library of Virginia focused on Virginia's role in the American slave trade. And we had um, the two previously known Crow paintings. We had both of these there. Um, and we wanted to get the Havana painting as well. And the American government would not guarantee that if an American, now American citizen, had claim on it, that it wouldn't get claimed. So Havana said no. Um, are you talking about it's a big humbledy jumbledy sort of scene set in Charleston? Charleston until 1856, um, all slave sales were done out of doors, right next door to what we now know as the Exchange Building, but what served then as the post office. Um, very public square, right in the center of the city. Um, and they moved them indoors in 1856, not because of any concern of scrutiny um, or anything like that, but because it was blocking traffic. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, just curious about the, the uh, print you showed of the slave couple. Yep. So um, there are two fiddles. Yes. And um, one's black and one's white. So I was wondering if that was something that very common so you know there are hundreds of descriptions of coffles and they all do follow generally what that image shows and the fiddlers were there to create that as they were sometimes in slave auction rooms to create that forced sense of everything's okay right so fiddlers were commonly part of the entourage. So did you address this, um, the, the crow image you said it was reproduction and it was reproduced. What was its reach into the U.S. Sure. Many, many Americans either subscribed to the London Illustrated News or would go to their local reading library and read the London Illustrated News. It was one of the most prominent publications in the British-speaking world. So Crow comes here um, in 1853 as secretary to William Makepeace Thackeray. Um, Thackeray was a family friend. Thackeray needed someone to go with him on his speaking tour. Thackeray needed a speaking tour because he made no money from the sale of his works in the US, but could make money by lecturing, right? So he traveled around. Um, Crow in New York is there at the time that the first published version of Uncle Tom's Cabin is released, and he buys a copy for 25 cents and describes himself as being perfectly harrowed by its contents and interested, therefore, by the time he gets to the American South to understand American slavery. He becomes particularly interested in the American slave trade, um, and so sets out, especially in Richmond, um, which was the largest slave trading center of the cities he went to, to go witness a slave sale. He then did the same thing in Charleston as well. And that forms the basis for the images that he creates. He then goes back and exhibits this painting in 54 or 55, the Havana painting also 54 55, not Royal Academy. They are not accepted at the Royal Academy. So one is accepted at the Royal Scottish Academy, which is a much less prestigious venue. The other by the 
Royal Society of British Artists, much less um, prestigious venue. Um, and then this painting's not made till 1861 um, and is accepted at the Royal Academy. The Illustrated London News publications come out in 56. And they're a series, and he writes the articles that go with him as well. He also publishes another article in Charles Dickens' publication called Household Words, No Images. Um, but through all of those gives us very descriptive responses to what he saw, what he felt, and gives us lots of clues of what he intended visually um, in the paintings, right? So like one of the things he writes about, and you can't see it because it's so washed out here, um, is this red flag hanging outside of the doorway. Auctioneers in Richmond, Charleston, New Orleans, this was a convention, the day of an auction, you hung a red flag outside of the auction room and often pinned to it might be the newspaper advertisement or a handwritten notice of the people that would be sold that day. So that in Richmond on this street called Wall Street, great irony there too, you could walk up and down the street before the sales and know who was gonna be sold. And they worked in line. You would go, everybody would move from auction house number one to auction house number two to auction house number three. It was a very coordinated system of sales. And he writes, of the irony of the sanguinary color of the blood red flag, right? And then you'll notice that as he depicts the individuals, we have no way of knowing what color clothing they were wearing that day, but every one of them has something red on and it visually ties them all together, but it also ties them to the fate that is symbolized by that flag. So his, his writings are very evocative, um, and it's unusual to have an artist for whom you have that play of text and image. Yeah? This image seems so um, singular and it's different than the other two. Yeah. The other two seem more drawn from yeah. the types of imagery. Yeah, convention. Do you account for that? Do you think he had time to kind of yeah. ruminate on it? Yeah, I think he had time to ruminate. My bet is his, there's no, evidence that he was a really active at, you know, campaigning abolitionist, right? But he belonged to the Reform Club, which in London was a club for people with rather progressive political tendencies. Um, he's living in a London that's full of abolitionist activity, right? There are anti-slavery lecturers constantly coming through London. There are anti-slavery panoramas that go through. There's eight million Uncle Tom's shows. There's constant talk. And so between 55 and 61, not only have his skills as an artist matured, but I think his thinking on slavery had matured as well. That's how I explain it. I have no way of knowing, right? But that's my interpretation of it. Um, this is also a rather singular image, but it picks up on a lot of uh, iconic Images, so most particularly the figures, the you know the runaway figure, right? So he's kind of worked that in um, in a very interesting way. Um, he's representing 
the moment after the sale when enslaved people are gathered up by the dealers who have purchased them from far away, which is what most of the slave trade in Richmond is. And this is at the railroad depot, and they're getting ready to be put on the railroad. And by the 1850s, most of the enslaved people who leave Richmond leave by railroad, because by then you have a vast network um, that can get you far out of Richmond as opposed to Coffell. Um, here is Thomas Jefferson's Capitol building, so this symbol of liberty. Um, and the American flag both hanging there to point out the contradiction. Um, but this work is, you know, piggledy-piggledy, jumbled up. Um, this image of, it's, you know, unclear, is he giving the baby to her, is she giving the baby to him? You know, my bet is this is meant to be a family separation. Uh, so he's picking up on a lot of themes that have been part of anti-slavery material for a long time. The other thing I will note, um, so it, he made, he made hundreds of sketches when he was in the American South, and they're all lost. Some of them get published by him in a book in the 1890s called With Thackeray in America, which by then has all the sort of nostalgia that you might imagine an 1890s publication would have. So whatever anti-slavery fervor he had when he made the earlier paintings, it's kind of faded by the 1890s. Um, but this is his published version of the sketch he made when he was on site. So there's another great story. He's sketching on site, the room, um, is fascinated with what the, he's doing. They eventually assume he's an abolitionist and they chase him out um, of the auction room. But he makes this sketch on site and look how much he has Uncle Tom in his mind, right? So he's just read the book. He owns the book. His original sketch of the man at the end is very much Uncle Tom. Complacent, slightly characterized, this man is very different, right? So by 1861, this man carries the anger and indignation that actually had never been represented on the walls of the Royal Academy ever before, right? So when people of African descent have been shown in the Royal Academy, they've been shown as somebody's servant, um, there have been a few Uncle Tom paintings, and they're very sort of happy Uncle Tom paintings. This is a very different figure, and the, and the critics spent a lot of time talking about him. Yeah? Do you have any notion uh, knowledge of uh, live models that might have been used? He had to have worked from a live model by the time he got to the painting. Um, but there are plenty, you know, there, there's often a perception that there were not many Afri people of African descent living in London. There were a couple, like 20 or 30,000 probably by this period. So there are a lot of people of African descent in London. He certainly would have had access to live models. We just don't know who. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I'm wondering if there are certain pressers, pressers or printers who are better technology or others where their apologies might factor into what kind Yeah, so you're gonna continue to see the continuation of the rather crude woodcuts, but you're also gonna see the um, application of engraving and, and other techniques 
um, that allow things like the Fugitive Slave Act um, or, the, or the Anthony Burns, which is a mix of those two, right? The central image of Anthony Burns, such a gorgeously rendered portrait, probably from a daguerreotype, but it's, you know, it's not an image that has survived. Um, and then the surrounding bits, which are, are actually still crude. So you're going to see them um, both continue. Some of it is the development of and the spread. It's not that America didn't have that printing technology in the 1820s. It just wasn't broadly disseminated. So it becomes more disseminated. It becomes more accessible. But it's also twinned with the spread of anti-slavery activity, meaning there's more money for it, more of a market for the production of those kinds of things and so forth. So you're going to see both at play. Yeah. Um, so as someone who teaches literature, the one place I had encountered the, the crow image is on the front of my Penguin edition of Harry Jacobs' Incidents in the Legislature. Oh, interesting. Also 1861. Um, so I'm, I was assuming that was a you know, 20th century retrospective. Yes. Um, <laughs> that it is. So I wanted to make sure that I was trying yes. to ask if there's any evidence of it being like at the time. Yeah. If not, do you have any thoughts just about the sort of recirculation? Yeah, I don't think this image, other than its circulation uh, as an illustrated London news. So here's the, uh, to give you a sense of what prints in the illustrated London news looked like, there was a, on the same page a version of this in the 1856 publication. But other than that illustrated London news, there's no indication that it gets picked up in any other way, right? So it has that particular moment in Britain right after the outbreak of the American Civil War. And then because politics change and move, it no longer has its resonance. Um, and I think it just kind of disappears. Yeah. So when you were talking about um, different anti-slavery products and how it's sort of ballooned and um, supported a you know, very commercial market yep. at the time, um, you mentioned that um, you know, the women or those who produced these goods uh, were, were also including literature, anti-slavery literature as a way to disseminate their message. But I wanted to find out if there was also the possibility of the commodification of the black body as, you know, uh, strictly for capitalistic, in, you know, purposes and motivations, and not necessarily to fuel a political right. Right. I think what the women's groups are doing is to fuel a political movement in the 1820s. I think what the Uncle Tom's Cabin producers of ceramics and figurines and playing cards, I think that has nothing to do with an anti-slavery movement. I think it has everything to do with a capitalist market. No sort of inkling at all of, of a possible capitalistic, purely you know, intended motivation that transpired earlier. For those women? That is, well, for anyone who participated in the market. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sure the printmakers, I mean, the people they commission to do these works have a different set of motivations than the, women's them, the women themselves who are sewing the bags and campaigning 
Um, there's no evidence that they are themselves making any money from this activity because they are pouring the money, best I can tell from the records, and I've looked at their, I mean, it's an amazing set of records that survive in the Birmingham record. The biggest of these is, is situated in Birmingham. Um, you know, they're accounting for all the money that comes in and accounting for the other things that they are doing in support of the movement. So it's no, it's no sense they're making a profit from it, if that's the question. Printmaker, probably that they're commissioning, probably a different set of motivations. And we don't know who the artists are that they've commissioned to do those works, and we don't know who the printers are. Yeah? Um, I was wondering about the sort of the print culture in the North versus the South. Um, the image of the fugitive running away from the <laughs> outside, I know that some of those at least were made by printers and gravers in the North. To the south, uh, and then, like, I doubt very. I doubt many of those ever make it to the south. Okay. So they're almost all produced in the north. Oh, you mean the, the ones that are printed in southern newspapers? The... Oh, you mean those little wood blocks? Yeah, I, I've seen like one of the more sophisticated ones mm -hmm. with the you know the guy carrying the knapsack. Right. Outside, right. Sure. Sure. So those runaway images are all over southern newspapers, right? But most of that other stuff, the anti-slavery almanacs, the publications of the many different anti-slavery groups, little of that is circulating in the South. Right. And it's all being produced in the North. And the woodblocks themselves that southern newspapers are buying are probably from northern producers just because that's who's producing most of the woodblocks for everything else in a newspaper. The ships, um, the little pile of you know, dry goods, you know, the kinds of images that are in 19th century newspapers are stock items, right? So you purchase your alphabet in many different sizes and scale, and you purchase a number of these images that are meant to kind of grab attention. And the runaway slave um, is the one in southern newspapers, although there are many versions. They're probably made in New York, maybe Philadelphia, right, and then put in southern newspapers. And then later on, when you do start to see some of the pro-slavery images, um, if you show the one of slavery in America versus right. slavery in Britain. Would that also have been? Well, what, what there really is, I don't remember where that one's produced, um, but what there is a lot of in response to Uncle Tom's Cabin are a series of pro-slavery responses. And Phyllis's Cabin is probably the best known, but there are a bunch of these. And then they have images that accompany them. Um, but there's not much of a printing industry in the American South. And so even most of those books are produced in Philadelphia or New York. We often don't know who the artists are, but there's not a broad collection of artists in the American South. So those are probably Northern artists who are commissioned to make those things as well. So in terms of the, the market, most of it is being produced anti and pro in the North. Okay. You're welcome.